Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 9. Till We Have Faces, Part 1, Chapters 12 to 13. The Riddle of Psyche. Good morning, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt Swift. No, 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 no. I got to stop you. No, 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 no. I see what you're about to say. I can't let this be said. It's been said. It's too late. Nick, leave this in. I think I overpowered it. They couldn't hear it, the word. No. What's the word, David? I'll let you say it. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt Swifty Bush. See, what you don't realize is because we both now log into notes with the same one, when you highlight it, I now see you do it in white, and it's highlighted on mine too. Mm -hmm. So I saw you about to do it. I saw your reaction. It was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So for the uninitiated, Taylor Swift fans are known as Swifties. I found this out by Googling. And so I thought, for this week, it's Matt Swifty Bush. Yes, I do enjoy Taylor Swift. Although, in fairness, I don't listen to her new album ever. It was, it, was, it was one of those, sometimes there's albums. Has your, has your love soured? Yeah, well, no. Well, maybe. I don't think it has. But do you know how there's certain albums that have more depth to them and some that are just more shallow? And mm. the shallow ones can be fun for a bit, but then they don't, ling- they don't last. That what ha- that's what happened with this one to me. Uh, Either that or I'm growing up finally. Yeah. I can't uh, figure, hey, you know what? Maybe Till We Have Faces is maturing me. Yeah, next before you know it, you'll be growing a beard and everything. Oh, God, that's at least 10 years away. <laughs> well, let's jump into the drink of the weeks. I like how I said weeks. Drink of the week. Well, you're drinking boring stuff all the time. So tell us, what are you drinking? I am drinking another herbal tea by Yogi, the Yogi brand. It's a sleepy time. Well, I am holding down the fort. I'm drinking Scruble, which is a peanut butter whiskey. So I'm a little nervous about this, but um, we'll, we'll see. Uh, and we will toast right after you've given us the quote of the week. Uh, well done, but I want to make a comment. Have you seen the movie Peanut Butter Falcon? I have not. Oh my goodness. I just, I mean, you're drinking peanut butter whiskey. Incredible movie. I would recommend anyone to go see it. It's the Shia LaBeouf with the Down Syndrome individual that go on that journey. Phenomenal movie. Phenomenal movie. Anyways, back to the quote of the week. I took this from the second chapter, so chapter 13. It was hard to figure out which quote I wanted in here. There's a whole scene here, and we're going to unpack it in this chapter, but I thought this was an important part of the scene. Orwell says, I never doubted that I must now cross the river or try to cross it, even if it should drown me. I must lie on the steps at the great gate of that house and make my petition. I must ask forgiveness of Psyche as well as of the God. First of all, we're going to unpack that later because that doesn't sound like the Orwell we've been reading about. Mm-mm. Does this mean something's changing? I don't know. Stay tuned. With that, cheers. Cheers. This definitely smells of peanut butter. Is it really? Oh my goodness. And it bizarrely tastes of it as well. I'm going to be honest. Uh, whiskey titled Screwball doesn't get me that excited. It's got a picture of a sheep on the front of it as well. Yeah, not helping. That's how you know they're serious. I find the best of anything, uh, whether it's wine, whether it's scotch, whether it's whiskey, they have very classy bottles and sophisticated names. Hence, Macallan. And it's a beautiful bottle. Screwball and peanut butter whiskey just sounds cheap. You know what? I'm actually quite liking this. (laughs) David, I don't know if you should admit that. It's kind of like the honey whiskey, the Jack Daniels honey whiskey. It's very sweet. There's definitely a taste of peanut butter to it. Hmm. All right, let, let's, let's carry on. I'll, I'll give you updates on my opinion as we go through. <laughs> the fact that it needs to mature in your mouth might already tell you all you need to know. Well, at the moment, I'm saying I'm really liking it, but it might become too sickly sweet. All right. Now, you and I both received a delightful gift in the mail this week. Yes, it was unexpected. She must have contacted you because I was not prepared for it. <laughs> Which made it better, of course. Yes. I did actually message you about this, but clearly you didn't see it. No, I was. I, I almost when I got, I'm like, "What you doing? Giving out my address there, David? Is this payback for when I gave out your address?" Yes. I was like, "Are we keeping score now? That's never healthy in a marriage." <laughs> That's a good thing we're not married then. <laughs> so, would you like to tell the listeners what we received in the mail? 
Oh, I'm supposed to do this. <laughs> we received, now, now we're going to realize I haven't opened it too much yet, but we received a, by, from Lena, she sent a book on the wardrobe. Is it looking through the wardrobe, was it called? Yeah, through the wardrobe. Through the wardrobe. It's been a busy week for Matt. Okay, so it's, it's a children's book about C.S. Lewis, his early life, uh, meeting Joy and writing the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, I didn't know it had joy in it. Yeah. I sent you a picture towards the end. You just see them walking off into the distance holding hands. And I sent you a message saying, shut up. I'm not crying. You're the one that's crying. <laughs> David, you send me a lot of things. Some of them just go past me. <laughs> yes, that lovely whooshing sound over your head. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I also got to hang out with people who paid attention to things that I say. Uh <laughs> I, Marie and I, we went up to LA on Sunday and we went to an evening with C.S. Lewis. Oh, how cool. It was really, really good. What was he like in real life? He was delightful. Oh, I always pictured C.S. Lewis as delightful. <laughs> so this isn't the version that's put out by the FPA, the Fellowship of Performing Arts. They're the guys who do The Great Divorce, Most Reluctant Convert, The Screwtape Letters. So this is a different production company, The Burden Baby, that's what they're called. Uh, and clever. I, yeah. And so since Marie and I were driving up after church and we we're going to make our way back and see friends who live in LA and Orange County. So I just sent the production company a message saying, how long does the performance last? Cause I couldn't find it listed anywhere. And they sent back a reply. It'll be 90 minutes. And then about 10 minutes after that, cause I just sent a, a thank you on my email. And, uh, one of the guys from the company sent us a message saying, Oh, by the way, really love the podcast. Can you make yourself known when you get to the theater? So, no. Yeah. No, so, no. You're so, you're, you are full of malarkey. Yeah, no, I don't believe it. Uh, no. So we got to hang out with Mark Whitmore and we got to meet the actor. Now, normally it's David Payne, uh, but he unfortunately had to go to hospital. So he was covered by another guy called Phil Crowley. And No pun intended there. It's not really a pun, but. Where's the pun? Maybe irony. David Payne going to hospital. I'm assuming he's in pain. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. I hope it was the first serious thing. And uh, it seems to be serious enough that for him not to have to skip a, a performance. But I know he's he's scheduled to perform again fairly soon. Whew. Good. Yeah, just saved you from that. Uh, <laughs> but for those of you who have seen The Most Reluctant Convert, this one, there was much more humor in this performance. Uh, there was lots of storytelling, lots of laughter. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we, got, we got to meet them all afterwards and... Uh, don't be surprised if you uh, hear these guys on this show before long. Wow. Well done, David. That's exciting. I'm happy you got to meet them. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of LA, for those of you who are in the area, I'm going to be up there speaking at St. Ignatius Catholic Church at the beginning of Lent. And I'm going to be talking about the Screwtape Letters. The, the official title I've given it is How to Annoy the Devil, Resisting Temptation with C.S. Lewis. Hmm. Should I make a shout out to the people who might be around that weekend? I'll be giving a talk or no? Sure. Yeah, go for it. So if you're around, most likely, I can confirm this. It's a, it's a two-day conference at Notre Dame, February 6th and 7th. And I should be the afternoon of the 7th speaking and speaking on authenticity from the perspective of C.S. Lewis. That's not the title of the talk, but that's what I need to write on and need to put this together fast. But I'm excited. So if you're around the South Bend area, it's going to be on campus. It'll be all day Friday, Saturday. It's called the Edith Stein Conference. So you can Google that and type in Notre Dame and it should pop up. Maybe we'll put a link in the show notes. I've always wanted to say that. David always gets to say that. <laughs> I'm very excited. And I'm going to make Matt record it. So we will be putting this up on the stream as well. Oh, great. Now you just added more pressure. More I thought, pressure. I thought only a couple hundred people had to listen to me. Now a couple thousand people have to listen to me. That's not good. Yep. Going to drive you to greatness. <laughs> David, you're a pusher. Mm-hmm. I just want you to be the best version of you. Oh, you're so kind. Rather, rather than the version that I have to record with each week. Oh, uh, <laughs> and lastly, speaking of listeners, uh, one of my friends from Kansas City, Bridget, she messaged to tell me that she's starting a book club and they're going to be going through C.S. Lewis's Cosmic Trilogy. So this stuff just makes me so happy. So can more people do that? That would be great. Wow. Without further ado what people have been waiting for. Let's get stuck into chapter 12. Let's get ready to rumble. 
David's looking at me like, oh my gosh. What a muppet. I know. Orwell leaves Psyche and returns to Bardia, and together they spend the night on the edge of the valley. At twilight, Orwell goes to get a drink and briefly sees Psyche's amber castle. But it soon starts to fade. She tells no one of the experience. She returns to Bardia and they begin to travel back down the mountain. They stop around noon and Orwell tells him about the meeting with Psyche. After some pressing, he says that he believes Psyche's testimony. When asked about why her husband doesn't show his face, he says it's probably because he's ugly. Orwell continues to try and make sense of things as they continue down the mountain, concluding that it would be better for Psyche to die than to be sport for the brute. She parts ways with Bardia and she sneaks back into the palace by the back route. I'm excited for this, these next couple chapters. There's some, the first time I read them, it was tough. I thought to myself, oh, these are interesting, but what are the big themes? And what are the takeaways? How they connect, they connect to our lives? But this one here, I'm, I'm quite excited for the theme of grace and responding to grace. I think if that's what I would keep in the back of my mind as we go through this. And the way Orwell responded versus the way Psyche responded in a few chapters earlier t- than this to the grace of glimpsing the West Wind. Two very different responses. So let's get back to the beginning of the chapter where Orwell returns to Bardia. And they spend a night on the edge of, of this valley and they light a fire and they have an evening meal. And Bardia, rather chivalrously, I thought, asked her permission to sleep close so that she'll be warm and they'll put the cloaks over both of them. I never thought of that. What a good move. I thought it was very sweet. But Aurora's response, she said, I said yes to that. And indeed, no woman in the world has so little reason to be chary in such matters. Yet it surprised me that he should have said it. For I did not yet know that if you are ugly enough, all men, unless they hate you deeply, will soon give up thinking of you as a woman at all. I thought the fact that she's writing this you know, in the future, it's showing that this trajectory of bitterness and almost pessimism, thinking the worst of people, it just it keeps continuing, which is kind of depressing. It is. In the same way, in many previous examples of the way she's viewed situations, they've been wrong. Mm-hmm. And so here's another example where maybe... I mean, he's married, so that's probably the real reason why he doesn't look at her in a lustful way. He's just a good human being and faithful to his wife, but she sees it differently. She doesn't even think about that. She sees it, oh, I just must be ugly. Yeah. And it would have almost been easier for them just to sleep completely separately and for him to let her get cold. Yeah. he He's such a gentleman. I love Bardia. Now, Bardia goes to sleep quickly and Oral doesn't. And as I said- Were you jealous when you read that, by the way? Uh, getting to sleep quickly? Yeah, I thought to myself, man, I wish I could... I put my head to the pillow and 20 minutes of thoughts go through my head as I ruminate on life. And he just... <laughs> out. I'm like, gosh, <laughs> I wish I had that. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not too dissimilar. But Orwell, she doesn't really sleep. And she gets up at twilight and goes to get a drink from the stream. And I think this is probably worth describing because I was actually reading this section to Marie as we were waiting for this play to start. And this was a what moment. (laughs) Aurora writes, I got my drink, ice cold, and I thought it steadied my mind. But would a river flowing in the God's secret valley do that? Or the clean contrary? For when I lifted my head and looked once more into the mist across the water, I saw that which brought my heart into my throat. There stood the palace, grey, as all things were grey in that hour and place, but solid and motionless, wall within wall, pillar and arch, an architrave, acres of it, a labyrinth beauty. As she has said, it was like no house ever seen in our land or age. Again, she always sees things differently. I mean, first of all, that's profound. She's, it was almost like there's the grace from the gods giving her a glimpse of it to help her understand they are real in the things that Psyche said are real. But notice that the first part there where she drinks a river and it steadies her mind which is somewhat of a beautiful thing, this water, when you like your mind to steady. But then she thinks, but wait, wouldn't the gift of the gods be the opposite of that? Like her assumption is gods are so bad that there's no way if you're drinking water from the gods, it should steady your mind. Again, how she always thinks the opposite, incorrectly. But in response to this revelation, she realizes that 
she should repent. And that was the quote of the week. That was the passage that you read earlier. Mm-hmm. And I was really surprised at that. Yeah, well, it, it's why I made the comment that it doesn't sound like her. But it's, it is, I, I feel like Lewis is trying to communicate when you get a glimpse of the gods and in our own life, when you feel the presence of God, truly feel it if you do, your only response is to fall on your knees and to repent. I mean, I think that's what he's trying to communicate here. And there's a reason it's so, it's such a dramatic shift from the norm of Orwell. So it really stands out to us. I've never seen anything like it. She just throws up her hands up and completely wrong. It's the till we have, not till we have faces, the great divorce. We said, you get on your knees, you get in front of God when you realize you're wrong and you said, I'm sorry, thy will be done. That's almost what he's showing here. But he also shows how quickly it can disappear. Yes. Because she says, I was in great fear. Perhaps it was not real. I looked and looked to see if it would not fade or change. Then as I rose, for all this time I had been still kneeling where I had drunk, almost before I stood to my feet, the whole thing vanished. Why do you think it vanishes at that point? Her doubt creeps in. Mm. She doesn't want to believe it. Every, everything that she's ever believed, this is contrary to everything she's believed. So her old thoughts come rushing in. There's, there's, there's the rational doubt, but then there's also fear that if it's true, that means she's probably really lost psyche and she's not getting her back. There's probably a lot of things coming in here. But what I liked most about this was this is direct. This is the exact same experience Psyche had in the mountain with the West Wind. Remember, she said she got a brief glimpse of the West Wind mm-hmm. in the in the man, more or less. Although she couldn't see it as a man, but knew it was, and then it was gone. But she believed it. She trusted it. Those doubts, those fears, whatever it is, did not come sweeping in on Psyche. So Lewis is giving us, again, a dichotomous picture of two different responses right through Orwell and Psyche. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I still, I can't wait to see if this gets answered. And if it does, I will write a long (laughs) blog post on it and honestly a talk and we'll have solved the whole entire spiritual journey. Because the question I constantly ask myself, what is it about Psyche versus Orwell? If we can answer that really beautifully, I mean, I've already tried a bit in the blog post with the word longing and unpacking that. Ultimately, we all want to respond to God's graces. That's what this was. And we want to be able to perceive what we see. And yet most of us don't. Our hearts are closed off. And so I'll be curious, even if you have thoughts now, or if this is something where just over the next 150 pages, we develop an answer. But that, that answer is powerful. Part of me did wonder when I was reading the section where she's talking about repenting. At least know when I'm due to go to confession and I, I'm thinking back on the past few weeks and thinking about what I might need to repent of, I notice that when I come across something, it's like this, I need to repent of. There's always a voice that comes rushing in as soon as possible in an attempt to justify it or to find some other way out of it. I can relate. So I think part of it might be that that response in Orwell is much stronger. Well, maybe you, you made me think of something. That response is trained. It's developed. It's a habit for her. So to reverse the habit, it's not a single moment. It's daily actions. And so as I'm thinking through answering that question of why was Psyche able to respond to the grace and Orwell was not? Well, it made me think of just practical tips. This is a little bit getting away from the story, but I think of the examination of conscience at the end of the day, where you look back on your day and you try to see God's graces in your day. When you do that more often with a gratitude and an open heart and, and eyes to try to see it, I would imagine you see it more frequently. And Psyche spent much of her childhood, the bits that we see, seeing God's grace almost, like in the longing, in the way that he comforted her. So she was trained to see it, Orwell was not. I don't think Lewis makes it quite as explicit as that, but Uh I would argue that's a good place to start. Yeah. There's something else I want to say. I wonder if Lewis was telling us something in terms of when this vision disappears. She sees it when she's kneeling at the stream, which was actually the first time that she saw Psyche. She was kneeling at the stream. And she sees her palace when she's kneeling at the stream. But it's when she gets up. She gets up off her knees, off from a, away from a position of docility and receptivity that the vision vanishes. Yeah, I can't say with certainty, but it, it wouldn't surprise me. Lewis is, is very intentional with nature, landscape, actions. And so that for her... Her pride, it actually, remember it said, uh, 
early on that the two things that got in her way at one point was pride and impulsiveness. And so pride, when you're on your knees, you're not proud anymore. You're in a pretty humble position. So you're in a, you're in a vulnerable position. There you go. Very good word. Yeah. Vulnerable. So it wouldn't surprise me. I would, I would like to think that's true. And there's also that passage in Screwtape where Screwtape says, let your patient not kneel when he prays. Let him think that his bodily position means nothing. Oh, you're killing me right now. I, I sit down <laughs> with my feet up. <laughs> Way to challenge me right you're now. Sinner. I always ask myself, I, know, I always ask myself, is this rosary doing as much as I'm sitting here with my head laid back and resting? <laughs> Sipping on a scotch. Uh, well, no, not, not, a, not that at the far, moment. but <laughs> <laughs> typically a tea, but still. Wow. Thanks, David, for ruining my morning routine. You're welcome. But once again, Oral's reaction to this is very telling because she's wondering, was this a sign from the gods? And she said, well, either way, there's divine mockery in it. You know, the idea of there being a sign, uh, but even the meaning of that sign is just guesswork. And she basically says, why are the gods so hidden? Why not? Why aren't they just plain? And it actually also reminded me of what the king said back in the pillar room when he said, oh, it's just like the gods to make you do something and then punish you for it. There's definitely an idea of the king's psychology that has its place in Orwell. The idea that whatever the gods will do, she will find fault one way or the other. And believing that the gods are will, will damn you if you do and damn you if you don't. We should take a pause here for a second because something you said there is important. That's a question people ask today is, why is God... Why didn't he reveal himself even more strongly? Some people say, why isn't there in the stars? He just says, I am God or something. You always hear those facetious type statements, but you, you hint at something right there that they, they almost mask themselves, hide themselves somewhat because we can't handle it. The fullness of it at this stage, this book has really been revealing that. And we'll see more of that later, actually in the next chapter as well. But that's a very important point, And I think it's an answer that Lewis is trying to communicate to us. Like we can't handle, we couldn't just walk up to God right now. Actually, if you could, I'm not sure that would be a good thing. It's easy that people want to say that, oh, he's so accessible. Like, of course you can. I'm not really sure. I mean, we'll see that later. So I don't want to say too much more, but this is the first example of her asking that. This is a question we ask ourselves all the time. Although you even do hear atheists like, um, I think, uh, Dillahunty, he's often said that even if he saw oceans parted in Jesus' name, he wouldn't believe. He would just assume that he has a brain aneurysm or a tumor or something. <laughs> well, there's two examples in scripture too. Moses in a burning bush. It could have just been a fire. And who would have thought it might not have been God. You hear a voice, but maybe it's something else. And then when a baptism of Christ in the heavens opened, some people just heard thunder and like a loud roar. So we see this throughout scripture too, and it's ambiguous to some people. Some people can actually see and perceive, some see something else. Well, as Lewis himself said, what you see and receive very much depends on the kind of person you are and where you're standing. Or in this case, kneeling. Oh, that's a good one. Anyway, she goes back to Bardia, but she doesn't tell him what she saw. And she admits that she never told anybody the fact that she thought she saw the castle, which is kind of damning for Orwell. It's very hard to say that you're pursuing truth when you purposely omit details. That tells me she knows those details are important. Mm. She doesn't want them to be true. Yeah. So we're starting to get our answer. Is it her fault or is it not? I think it might be. It's not looking good. Nope. But anyway, they begin their journey back to Gloam, and Orwell tells Bardia what happened with Psyche. And although he listens, she has to really press him to get him to give his verdict on how he reads the situation. And when she eventually gets a response out of him, he makes it clear that he's a God-fearing man. He offers appropriate sacrifices, and he lists all the sorts of things he would never do, even if the king ordered him, such as eating with his left hand, sleeping with his wife on a full moon, all kinds of weird stuff. But he concludes with this. He says, the less Bardia meddles with the gods, the less they'll meddle with Bardia. <laughs> there was a lot in this. Well, it was also very reminiscent of his attitude back in the pillar room. Remember when the king tells him to go and kill all of the priest's guards? And he says, no, Bardia isn't going to get between gods and kings. He follows. He's a character. He's a person in life. I've mentioned this before, who very dutifully, beautifully, and simply follows God doesn't need to ration, doesn't need to reason per se, just out of a trust and a blind, honestly, a blindness to some degree, but 
a, a beautiful blindness, I would say, in this case. He actually reminds me a little bit of Lewis. If you remember in Surprised by Joy, he said that the thing that he wanted most of all was just to be left alone. <laughs> Maybe Lewis is in a few of these characters. Yeah. And that does kind of seem to be Bardia. He believes in the gods, he wants to honor them, but he generally wants to stay out of their way and not press too deeply into the mystery. I, I also thought it was interesting here in the exchange with Bardia, when he, gives, when he does give his opinion and he shares his thoughts, she's curious if, if, if Bardia thinks that Psyche's mad, if she's gone mad. And he reminded me of the liar lunatic lord. He reminded me of the professor because his first thought was, I mean, anyone could tell she was in her right mind and he's going to give her the benefit of the doubt as a blessed one. It's almost the same thing with Lucy. Give her the benefit of the doubt. She's never shown that she's a liar. And Psyche, as a blessed one, hasn't. And she was in her right mind. And so to him, it's very clear. There's actually no question. No riddle. No riddle. She is with the God. But he's now, is it the shadow brew and the God? Are they one in the same? And that's where it ends. And Psyche and Orwell's really struggling with that because then she thinks the worst. But I like how simple he thought of it. Yeah. He says, who am I to give the blessed one the lie? He's going to assume that she's speaking the truth until he has a reason to doubt her. Yes. And he says, you know, regarding who it is that comes to Psyche, she's the one that's going to know best. Yes. And Orwell then presses down on this. She says, okay, what kind of lover wouldn't show his face? And again, after some more prodding, Bardia really doesn't like having these sorts of conversations. He says, I should say that it was one whose face and form would, would give her little pleasure if she saw them. And he makes the point. After all, they call her the bride of the brute lady. And we're going to, there's going to be a chance to expand on this a little bit later in the next chapter as well. But there is another answer to it. The fox told the story of Aphrodite in the beginning or earlier in this book and how Aphrodite hides her immortal greatness before she comes to Anchises. Anchises. <laughs> Let's just move past Let's that move one. On. But yes. Not because she was hideous or fearsome, but because one must be made ready to come into the presence of a god. So there is another explanation. There can be, at least. doesn't necessarily mean it's the right one, but at least there is another potential. Now, as they go down the mountain, Orwell's continuing to think, and she realizes that Bardia's opinion will most likely reflect all of Gloam. And she seems basically convinced. She accepts his answer. And then her mind starts going back down a dark path, back to the time when she said that she would rather kill Psyche herself rather than let the brute have her. And as she's considering this, she starts crying, unsurprisingly. And against this, she wonders, is that actually preferable to just letting Psyche be happy? Whatever this is that comes to her, whatever kind of life she's having, she seems to be really happy. Wouldn't that be better? Well, there's that quote that she says that's pretty powerful. I almost chose this as a quote where she goes, I perceive now that there is a love deeper than theirs who seek only the happiness of their beloved. And then she gives the example of a father, if he saw his daughter happy as a whore, would he let her stay that way? Is there something beyond just her happiness? Actually, I didn't know what I would do there. But I think this is also her excuse. We've already said that she has a deformed love for Psyche, that it is a love gone bad. And this is a very easy excuse. I should also say too, because as I think back on what I just said today, that term I probably should have said as like a prostitute. That's what Lewis is meaning it more as. Today, it sounds like you're just calling a girl whore. Um, so, that's really, so for listeners, Lewis was using it in, in the technical, like professional term. Just want to be clear there. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to get my head chopped off. <laughs> there were a, a couple of things that she said that I thought were particularly striking. When she was arguing with herself to just leave, leave be, just let things go, let things go. Don't spoil it. She says, don't mar what you've learned you can't make. I was, what I assumed she meant when she was saying this is don't mar this love and happiness that Psyche has, which you don't. Yeah. It's a jealousy type of jealousy. And there was another, there was another little sentence that I thought was telling. She says, however things must go, whatever the price by her death, Psyche's death or mine or a thousand deaths. See, she's willing to sacrifice the entire world, let the entire world burn rather than for her to lose her love. By fronting the gods beard to beard, as the soldiers say. And with that, in my, in my margin of my book, I wrote, beard to beard or face to face. Mm. 
do we have faces? <laughs> of course you did, David. Yeah. She says, Psyche should not, least of all contentedly, make sport for a demon. Well, you can see how she's rationalizing all this. Yes, and also struggling with it. She goes back and forth over the course of these chapters. This is a very good, I didn't think of this until now, but I see this in life all the time as well. A really good reason for the importance of a proper framework for the world. In this case, theological framework, but also just in things in life, exploring truth can be very helpful because she could she could sift through this and get to the proper answer. When you don't have a framework, it's really hard to come to an answer. And so there is, that's why Lewis talks about theology in a very good way. I mean, experience is very important, of course, but theology is also very important. It would be guiding Orwell greatly right now. Shall we go on to chapter 13? Yes. Didn't realize that was the end of it. Nice. Orwell is met by the fox outside her door. After she has refreshed herself, she tells him of the events on the mountain. He's overjoyed that Psyche is alive, but dismayed by the rest of her story. He assumes that Psyche is sick. After discussing the possibility of invisible realities, the fox concludes that Psyche has fallen into the grip of some kind of vagabond, and it is he who visits her at night. We find out that the king is to be called away to hunt lions and will be away for several days, which gives them time to act. Orwell suggests hiding Psyche in Bardia's house, but the fox rejects this idea and says that it's moot anyway, since that they have no means of bringing Psyche back by force. The fox, tired, retires for the evening, but Orwell continues to reason and plan her next move. This is going to get interesting. When Orwell gets back to the palace, she meets the fox by her door, and she tells him to come back later when she's eaten and changed. And when the fox comes back, Orwell is just finishing her meal, and she talks about her servant, Pooby, <laughs> which is just a funny name. Uh, and Pooby is present throughout the entire exchange, but that's okay because they're talking in Greek and she doesn't understand it. And this is where Orwell really starts to unpack what happened on the mountain. She first of all tells the fox that Saki's alive. And once again, he thanks Zeus. He says, see, I make a libation to Zeus the savior, who is a god that the fox doesn't actually believe exists. <laughs> I just find it strange that so much of his language is is polluted with an idea that the gods exist. Maybe polluted is too strong a word. It's so shaped by the idea that the gods exist, but it's something that he flatly denies. And that's it. To me, it, it's very apparent that that happens all the time today. Yes, but... Jesus, Mary and Joseph, people say that all the time. It's, it's amazing how Christian language shapes what we atheists say constantly. Yeah. I mean, I hear, I hear all those types of things, and I'm like, oh, you don't even believe... So the fox is really happy that Psyche is alive, but after Orwell tells the rest of her story, and again, it's worth emphasizing, she doesn't tell the whole story. She doesn't tell him that she saw the palace. The fox concludes that Psyche must be sick and that she needs medical treatment. And he says, the problem is, is that, you know, how are we to get her to this medicine and everything else that she needs? And he says that he even wishes he was either Odysseus or Hermes. Do you have any ideas why he picked out those two people? No. Don't even know who they are. Well, we've mentioned Odysseus before. He was a traveler and explorer. Hermes is one of the gods. And I'm not entirely sure why he picks these two, but Hermes had the ability to travel at great speed. So maybe that's what the fox is saying, that he could get up to the mountain quickly. Uh, but also Hermes was known as to be a trickster because they've basically got to get Psyche off the mountain. So maybe that kind of cunning would be needed to trick her to come down. And with regards to Odysseus, there are a few instances in his life of madness where he encounters people who have gone insane for one reason or another. Uh, but I thought it was particularly telling the fact that Odysseus, he tries to avoid joining the Trojan War. You know, Helen of Troy? Mm -hmm. So he tries to avoid joining that war by pretending that he's insane. But again, it could also just simply be that he was also a man who was known for his cunning trying to trick people into doing things that he wanted them to do. Once again, if any listeners have got any bright ideas on this, I would love to hear. Yeah, now that we've had that one gentleman send it in, that was fantastic. Yeah, more of that. And once we've got Slack up, which we'll be talking about very soon, uh, I hope for more of that. Now, Oral asks the fox 
just to confirm that he's thinking that Psyche is crazy. And he asks her, well, what other possible alternative can you think of? And Orwell doesn't tell him about the castle. Her chief argument is that Psyche just didn't seem mad. And she says, she talked so calmly. There was nothing disordered in her speech. She could laugh merrily. Her glance wasn't wild. If I'd have had my eyes shut, I would have believed her palace was as real as this. Yeah, that's, it constantly comes back to this. They're not very open-minded. Or while a couple from time to time seems to be. But the fact, because this is a very plausible explanation. She's not mad. They are the gods. And she doesn't seem mad. Yeah. And she might not be, though. I guess what I'm just saying is there could be an alternative. And the fox just, he, he doesn't think there are. There's just nothing. Because he just shuts down the possibility that there's gods. Never even an alternative. Mm. In the same way that a, a naturalist has to assume that the Bible is false because it contains miracles. And their worldview excludes that from the get-go. Yes. It's a good example. So as he's constructing his argument, the fox points out that, well, regardless of whatever Psyche's demeanor was, Orwell, her eyes saw no palace. Which again, this is the time, Orwell, this is the time you say, well, actually, I did see it. But she felt ashamed. Exactly. I think that's a large part of why she didn't tell the fox. Because she knew that he would mock her. She said many, many times in this book that he would often tease her whenever she spoke of the gods. Mm-hmm. So she decides to play in his field, so to speak, from the point of reason. She says, you don't think, not possibly, not as mere hundredth chance, there might be things that are real, though we can't see them. And the fox, being a good Greek philosopher, he agrees and he lists a few. We, don't, we can't see justice or equality or the soul or musical notes. But she, she takes his response and says, well, okay, if souls exist and they're invisible, could there not be a soul house, a palace, a castle like Psyche's? And he, he quibbles over the meaning of soul. I'm sure that this relates something to do with the Stoic conception of the soul, but I'm not really sure what that is. I still love to notice how this all would be fixed yes. if she would just say, well, it actually wasn't invisible. I saw it briefly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then it's more of a question of why could she not go on seeing it? But she continues down this argumentation and responds by asking him if there are things which exist, but we can't see, you know, because justice isn't so much a thing or neither is uh, equality or musical notes. And he says, again, good Greek philosopher says, yes, there there are things that we can't see that we know exist, like things that are behind our backs, things that are too far away and all things if it's dark enough. And that last one I thought was particularly interesting. Because it means that in order to see some things, we need illumination. And maybe just not natural illumination, like the illumination we get from the sun. Maybe we need an illumination from the sun of Ungit. Wow, David. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Man, if Lewis meant that, if it's dark enough to mean more than just technical, that's a very subtle but impressive nuance mm. and way to pick up on it. And if he didn't, if he didn't mean that, then we can just credit it as my brilliant insight. So I'm, I'm okay with that. Because yes, they're, they are not illuminated enough as Psyche was. So they don't see things. Their worldview is too dark, I guess, if you want to call it that. And honestly, <laughs> Orwell's is really dark. If you want to think of gloomy and terrible and pessimistic. And so she just does not have the ability to see things. And in response to this entire conversation, the fox hints that Oriole might be going a bit mad too. And I think this is what seals her decision not to tell him about the glimpse that she has of the palace. It's, it's shame. And also, he, he isn't an interventional supernaturalist. He seems to have some concept of the divine, but not a divine that interferes with day-to-day matters. It, so much in life, things can come back to shame. Isn't amazing. It prevents us from being our true self, prevents us from believing what we believe. Shame just screws everything up. And in this case, it stops them from reasoning correctly. Yes. Because as soon as she says, well, I actually saw it. Well, okay, now we have the ability for the fox to test. Is Oral mad? If she's not mad, then she saw something. Then, and that needs an explanation. They then turn to the matter of Psyche's husband, who it is that comes to her in the darkness. And Orwell is hopeful that, well, could this be also part of her madness? Does nobody come to her? And unfortunately, the fox says that he doubts this. Uh, He doubts that it's just her imagination. 
And he does this because there are two unanswered questions, which Orwell hasn't really been thinking about, which is pretty terrible. How was she rescued from the tree? How did Psyche get away from that tree? And also, why is it that she seems so well fed? Yeah, the fox does know how to ask the right questions. Yes, he's just, he also has a framework that excludes other possible answers. Exactly. And maybe you should throw a third one in, is how is she so happy? Also true. And the fox concludes that the simplest answer to these is the fact that there is a man on the mountain who freed her, and there is a man who is looking after her. And he says he's probably some robber or runaway. And he basically plays into her delusion. This is such a good example of how, even when you think of the case for the resurrection of Christ, and if you read the book, The Case for Christ, The Cold Case for Christ, they give four pretty much indisputable, even agreed upon by atheists, facts of the resurrection. And then two people can have completely different ways of filling in the gaps of that, or what's the most plausible conclusion to those four points. It just reminds me of that. It's it's so easy to come up with different answers. Yeah, it's the minimal minimal facts uh, case for the resurrection. It's usually things like Jesus was crucified, there was an empty tomb, uh, it, the tomb was discovered empty by the uh, female disciples, uh, skeptics converted, and the church exploded. Yeah. Oh, and I don't know if this, this is part of the skeptic converted, but people died for it too. Mm-hmm. I think that's somewhere in there. The disciples literally died for it. So what's the most plausible explanation for all of those? That explains all of them, not just some. Yep. And this is why Orwell omitting the fact that she saw this castle is so devastating. Mm-hmm. Because if she had said that, that now has to be accounted for in the fox's reasoning. Yes. If, the, if, you, if you would have excluded and the disciples died for this belief, that would really weaken the case of the resurrection. Yeah. So the idea that the fox has just put forward... It's not only convincing to Oral, but it's also just unendurable. The idea that Psyche would be joined with a commoner, someone who is not of divine descent, uh, which is actually the complete opposite of Bardia's explanation and what Oral hates about that, because there she's, it's the brute who is coming to her, who is divine. But for Oral, the idea of just some commoner, some brigand, some slave, some runaway, is just horrendous to her. And she says... The fox's explanation seemed too plain and evident to allow me any hope of doubt. When Bardia was speaking, he had seemed the same. And that put me in mind of, it's Proverbs 18.17, where it says, He who states his case first seems right, until the other comes and examines him. So basically, while Bardia was speaking, Oral was convinced by Bardia's theory. Now the fox is speaking, she's convinced by the fox's thesis. Which is why, if you're searching for truth, never stop at one book. Yes. Any book sounds convincing if you haven't done a full, uh, uh, with a lot of breath on a subject. You haven't dove in, div in, dive in. (laughs) Jumped in, let's say that. (laughs) Jumped jumped in uh, fully. It's very easy to be swayed with the first book you read. And please never stop on it. Yeah. And the fox just says, well, it just all seemed pretty obvious. He said he needed no Oedipus. So I'm going to, you know, the question I'm going to ask you now, Matt. Okay. You love to embarrass me on this podcast. Hey, we're reading the, we're reading the same book. I, I, I don't look these things up. I want to know why they're being mentioned. I thought Oedipus, it makes me think of, didn't we say something about like an Oedipus complex at some point? Mm-hmm. Is that related to this? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was last episode. Any relation to this? Same guy. And he was the one who solved the riddle of the Sphinx. Ha. So. Well done, Matt. I'm going to ask you the riddle of the Sphinx and we'll see if you're smarter than Oedipus. Okay. What walks on four feet in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three at night? Okay, that blank look, I'm just going to give you the answer. <laughs> oh, oh, can we just not, and then I have to think of it for next week? Well, no, no, because that gives you time to Google it. I'll give I you until Google the end of the it. episode. Okay. I'll give you until the end of the episode. So what walks on four feet in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three at night? So, moving on with the story. Oh, well, you Matt have it written right playing below. some very... F- <laughs> I was trying to reread you it went, to process it. You suck. <laughs> I couldn't hey, you were the one that went and you were the one that went and looked at my notes. So, <laughs> listeners, the answer is man. As an infant, he crawls on all fours in the morning of his life. As an adult, he walks on two lengths, and in his old age, he uses a walking stick and therefore goes on three. I would never have gotten that. That walking yeah. stick's just unfair. 
I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to need a walking stick. I refuse. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. By, by then, we'll have hover bikes anyway. That's exactly right. Oral and the fox, they now turn to the question as to what to do. So they think that there is a man who has bewitched Psyche. And it's now that the fox tells her that lions have been seen in another part of the kingdom, and this is going to be taking the king away for several days. And listeners will recall that lions preceded the brute on the, on the mountain. Before the brute appeared, lions appeared. So it sort of begs the question, are they under his control? Is this how Psyche knew that the king wasn't going to be an obstacle for a few days? And, it, and again, Oral doesn't think about this. Psyche prophesied that the king was not going to be an issue for the next few days. And lo and behold, she's right. Oh, remember I mentioned that? When, when the prophesy happened, I said, let's see how, if Orwal is able to see it, because most likely it's going to come true. Yep. And she didn't. <laughs> of course not. I'm losing sympathy for Psyche. I mean, Orwal. The fox talks about the king's reaction. And it's also kind of interesting because he seems genuinely excited by the fact that there are lions roaming around in the kingdom, killing shepherds and flocks. <laughs> I have my own theory to this. Why do you think he's so happy about it? I don't have a good theory. My first thought was this is just a, a, since everything's going great in life, it just adds for fun and for him and something to do and a distraction, honestly. I think it's because it's a problem he knows how to solve. Remember what Bardia said about the king, that he knows how to deal with soldiers and shepherds and all of those kinds, but he doesn't know how to deal with women and priests and politicians. Hmm. It's like those things are complicated and hard and he doesn't really know what to do. But a bunch of lions going and killing stuff? Go and stab it with my sword. You know, yeah. that, that, that has a very clear solution to him. That plays into his strengths. Exactly. Yep. And so he's going to be away for some time. Orwell is actually a little disappointed because when she first heard that there were lions appearing again, she thought that it might mean that Redival gets sacrificed on the mountain. <laughs> so rather than going to the thought that Psyche is telling the truth and she prophesied this, she goes to Redival. Yeah. Of course. Seems fitting. Now the fox points out that They've got a time crunch here. They've got to do something about Psyche quickly because she's soon going to be either with child or she's going to die of cold on the mountain. And this actually causes Orwell to kind of lose her cool and fly into a rage. And the fox tells her to control her passions. So control yourself, woman. <laughs> and then Orwell suggests that, well, if they can somehow get Psyche off the mountain, they could hide her at Bardia's house. But the fox doesn't think that's a good idea. They all somehow seem to forget too here that after the, I mean, I guess the fox doesn't because he had his explanation, but the rains came, the fields, do they not worry that, I mean, I guess they're just assuming that it was coincidence, Mm -hmm. but still my thought would be, oh, you're going to take her back and do you think everything's going to stay the same? Be interesting. I also thought the fox's assessment of Bardia was kind of harsh. He really doesn't think much of him. And at least from the exposure that we've had through the eyes of Oral, he seems like a great guy. But the fox says that, well, Bardi is just afraid of the gods, and he's under his wife's thumb. He says he's as amorous as Alcibiades. Please don't ask me about Alcibiades. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, a very vain man who consorted with uh, courtesans, despite being married. Wow, I don't believe that. I be- no, I believe you. I mean... How, does, how can the fox think that of Bardia? I think it's just simply the fact that he is a god-fearer. He does believe the gods are real. And I think for the fox, that automatically means he's an idiot. Yeah, but, but I'm talking about he's, he's calling him as Amoris, as Alcibiades. Well, clear, clearly, clearly Bardia scored a very attractive wife. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the fox is jealous. <laughs> we, don't, we don't yet know if this is true. All we're getting is the fox's assessment of the situation. Which I'm starting to doubt more and more every time he talks. Mm. Yeah. But he does say that they've got to get Psyche out of Gloam entirely. Because if they just bring her back to Gloam, the people are just going to want to sacrifice her all over again. And he says, but even that is entirely moot. Because they've got no means of removing her from the mountain by force. He's just, you know, kind of out of ideas. And so Orwell says that she's just going to have to go back to the mountain and convince Psyche somehow to run away. And rather touchingly, the fox says that if they run away, he will come with them. She had asked him to run away with him before when he thought he was going to die. He says, I'll, I'll do it now. And sort of as we then wrap up the sort of the, the final part of this chapter, Psyche just gets very self-focused. 
She speaks as though she's the only one who cares for Psyche. Despite what the fox just said, he's willing to leave everything and be a runaway for the sake of this girl. She says that she's the only one who cares for Psyche. And her thoughts continue to go back down that dark, that dark path of saying that she'd prefer to kill Psyche rather than leave her on the mountain. And the fox, he reacts very strongly to this. And he criticizes her. He says, there's one part of love in your heart and five parts anger and seven parts pride. That sounds about right. This pride keeps popping back up for her. And then the fox, out of ideas, announces that he's tired and going to bed. And Orwell is... She's kind of mean. She says lots of horrible things about how terrible men are. <laughs> All they want is a meal or a drink. They're too easily distracted. Uh, and that was one of the passages that Andrew Lazo said, suggests to him that Joy Davidman had a rather large part to play in this book. Also that Lewis is not sexist. That's true. Bashing men right now. Yeah. And when Orwell is alone, she continues her pity party, saying that everybody leaves me. Nobody cares for Psyche apart from me. And she does something strange. She actually prays to the gods. She suddenly does seem open to the idea, despite the fact that the fox has supposedly just refuted it. She flips back to Bardia's explanation of things. But when there's no immediate response from the gods, she then gets up and decides, okay, she's going to go back to the mountain the next day. And she goes to go to sleep. And she wakes up and she realizes that it actually doesn't matter whether Bardia is right or the fox is right. She says, either way, Something bad has Psyche. Yeah, that was a, an example. Evidence is a better word of, again, her possessive love. How all of this is driven by possessive love. Because notice at the very end, it said that some evil or shameful thing had taken Psyche for its own. Orwell can't stand the idea of Psyche with someone else besides her. And so that's really frustrating her. We also saw at the very end here, the quote, and this goes back to what I said in the last chapter too, where she goes, what lover would shun his bride unless he had some terrible reason for it? Well, there's an alternative explanation. It's not that this is some evil monster that doesn't want to reveal his face. It could be because the person, it's, it's maybe an incredibly beautiful face. Maybe it's a divine face, but it's just too much. And that's most likely the answer because if she was thinking back to the conversation Psyche had with Orwell as she's trying to convince her, Psyche says, I felt a mortal shame. So there is more truth to the other way if Orwell was actually weighing the evidence. But Orwell seems to be blind to any sort of evidence and her emotions dictate everything. And particularly, as I just said, her possessive love does. And that's the end of chapter 13. Well done, David. I think we got through it. We did. There's an awful lot to talk about in all of these chapters. So many things. This one out of all of ours. So David and I take our notes completely separately and I then chime in because it's easier. This one, if we went back and forth, I, mine were way smaller than yours. <laughs> <laughs> it, in some sections, I was like, oh, glad he put that in. It's, it's funny what things jump out to you, what don't. And that's why it's harder for David and I to sometimes go back and forth because he might have more things to say and I might think we're going to the next section already. And so it's easier for me to provide colored commentary. <laughs> Well, please join us next week when we're going to be reading chapters 14 and 15. And we will find out what happens when Orwell goes back up the mountain. And we're going to be going next week. Further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.